Welcome to season four of And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy And The Writer Is, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Built for musicians, by musicians. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a professional website and EPK for your music. Whether you're looking to book more gigs or need an affordable solution to manage your direct-to-fan sales and mailing list, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. Full disclosure, Joe and I are both BMI songwriters. So we didn't write this, but we believe it. BMI, we celebrate your talent, value your music, and champion your rights. To all our songwriters and composers, your passion is ours. BMI, music moves our world. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's multi-Grammy-nominated lyric virtuoso has the unique tone singers beg for. He's been crafting his career for over two decades, fronting both the iconic indie rock band Death Cab for Cutie and the perennial duo Postal Service. He's written and released something like 19 albums across a number of projects and received six Grammy nominations with Death Cab. This writer has inspired countless other writers and artists in our community with his colorful, layered, and vulnerable songs. His latest album... Thank you for today is being released at midnight tonight. Well, tonight being the day that we're recording this conversation. From just outside Seattle, this icon is in a genre by himself. And the writer is Ben Gibbard. Hello. Hello. This is the first time we're meeting. This is. This is the this is virtually the moment that we are we yeah. have met is being recorded right now. Isn't it weird how much I know about you just from <laughs> looking you up and being a fan, there's a, but, there's a lot on there. There's a, the internet has a lot of information, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Does that ever weird you out that people already feel like they know you before you meet them? 
Uh, not really, because I'm I'm the same way with people that I admire. When I meet somebody that I you know I've know a lot about, um, you know I, I it's I I just recently met someone who I admired for years, and I they had put a book out, and uh, I just read it. So this person was telling me all these stories about their life, and I was like, "Yep, uh huh, yep, I know yeah. that, yep, I know that." Yeah. So yeah, I, I think just when you're and when you kind of someone's in the public eye or you know a lot about them because you're a fan, it's I, mean, I do the same thing. Yeah, you know? of course. So let's start from the beginning. I mean, obviously, a, a lot of this is something you can find, but I want to hear from your voice. So you were born. Go. Yeah, I was. Okay, I so was. you're born outside of Seattle. Yeah. Uh, do your parents play music? Uh, my dad, my dad always, there was always an acoustic guitar kind of leaned against the hearth and, you know, an, an old nylon string guitar. And he would often pick up the guitar and lay out like a Beatles fake book and kind of play along with that and kind of, you know, kind of like struggle to find the chords a bit. So it'd be like, I want her ev- every, everywhere, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and so I just have these memories of my dad kind of just plunking on a guitar in the room. He was, you know, very much an amateur musician, still is. Uh, but uh, but that was just kind of all the spark that I needed to kind of want to know more about what he was doing. Did he know? write? Uh, I think he, 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 he'd written a couple songs, but nothing that he ever shared with me. He, he, he had a couple, I had noticed in the chipboard case he had for his Gibson LG1, there were some kind of little you know, like very like hastily scrawn out kind of lyrics that I think were his, but I could never read his handwriting, so I couldn't couldn't tell. But he said, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, I, I try to write a couple songs, you know, I don't know. But he 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 wasn't a he was a uh, amateur musician. He still is an amateur musician. When did you start picking it up, the guitar? Well, I took piano lessons uh, when I was from the time I was I think nine or ten till I was thirteen or fourteen, and and my parents would. They had this tactic, which I think is, I'm not a parent, but I think is a fairly good parenting tactic, which is if, let's say I wanted to take karate lessons because I had just seen the karate kid. Yeah, of course. Uh, I w- my parents would be like, okay, you can do that, but first you have to take a year of ballet lessons because flexibility and balance is important in karate. And, you know, so if you make it through that year of ballet lessons, you can take karate. And, well, and of course, I, I made it through like a week of ballet lessons before I, I realized there was no, you know, I wasn't there, interested there in was that. no balance. I was not interested in karate enough <laughs> to get all the way right. to, uh, the, to, through the ballet lessons. And it was similar with music. I wasn't particularly interested in piano, but... But if you were going to play guitar, you had to learn piano. Yeah, and it. in this instance, they were kind of right. I mean, so I, you know, so taking piano lessons for three or four years was kind of a chore. I didn't particularly enjoy it. Uh, of course. You know, it was classical piano and what nine or ten year old wants to play Mozart? You right. know? Um Were you learning other songs outside of it? No, I I didn't really. I wasn't that interested in 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 learning other songs on piano per se. But I would kind of change. I would change the classical pieces that I was to be learning to sound the way I thought sounded better. <laughs> and then I would bring those in, and I I would, would not have learned it correctly. I would have learned it the way that I thought it should sound, and sure. that didn't go over well at all with my teacher. Um, but Rem- when I w- remixing, is yeah, I was that. remixing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was uh, uh, covering them. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. But you know, I guess when I was twelve or thirteen, I, I finally kind of got the courage up to kind of start opening up the fake book and looking at how the chords, uh, how you know how the chords were voiced and kind of where to put your fingers and stuff, and taught myself rudimentary kind of chords and stuff. And then I took guitar lessons from a, a guy who lived up the street from me in my neighborhood and 
you know, got enough kind of basic knowledge of the instrument uh, to kind of go forward with. And, you know, to my parents' credit, the piano was very helpful in understanding the layout of the guitar and virtually every other instrument I've ever played, the stringed instrument, that is. Totally. So it was, it was you know, I, I, I would certainly recommend that, you know, piano lessons early on, I think, are really good for music theory and just kind of understanding how, you know, notes lay out. And it's, you know, as a visual learner, it was very helpful. Yeah, once you learn that, and then, you know, when you're learning guitar and you realize that uh, bar chords are really just the same form all the way up, it's the easiest instrument, but it becomes a lot easier once you understand piano. When you're like, wow, no black keys? You know, right, this is so yeah. much easier to yeah. play it when you're just, when it's all the, just the same shape all the way up and down a, a fret, you know, fretboard. This is a really dorky conversation, but <laughs> um, maybe it's important. Um, I mean, when you learn a fake book, especially from the Beatles, you understand chord changes and you understand melody and you study it from a different kind of thing. Are you, did you memorize any of that music or was there a specific Beatles stuff that you were like, man, I should, I should be, was there an era of the Beatles that you liked most or was it just sort of flipping through or is it rubber soles your thing or? You know, now rubber soul is my thing. Now rubber soul is my favorite Beatles record. Why? Uh, because I think it's an interesting, uh, it's it's a it's a bridge it's a bridge album for them. You know, it's it's kind of a bridge between the kind of the more you know the light the lighter fare of early Beatles kind of interestingly interestingly composed songs, uh, interesting chord changes and and bridges and things like that. But the lyrics were still kind of like you know I love you, Moon sure. June Swoon. Um, to this kind of to Norwegian wood to Norwegian wood and this <laughs> yeah. kind of this you know the kind of uh, you know the influence of you know drugs in the '60s and and kind of it, it represents this kind of interesting uh, sea change in their writing style and the production started to get more interesting. Um, so you know I, I don't necessarily think that Rubber Soul is the best Beatles record, but it's my favorite. Interesting. I I have one thing written down this way later, but you know when it kind of brings this question up, which is when you started having some commercial success, did you feel like you had to become more commercial? In the sense that when you say rubber soul, that's obviously them starting to go left of center and then they remain in that and then the world either embraces where they go or they don't, but they didn't really pander to the, mm-hmm. yeah. the audience a whole lot. You know? Um but I imagine being in a place where you have some songs that start to become pretty big hits that you end up questioning which road to go. Do you start aiming for the radio or do you let the radio aim for you? You know, did you go down that same sort of question path in your own head? You know, there was never there was never even a thought or conversation about wanting to make the music more commercial after plans, which was the our major label record that, you know, was our first and only platinum album. Um, because, you know, even the songs that were big on, that were our, that to this day, our biggest songs, you know, the, these, the two songs that are our biggest songs are a song that's just myself and a vocal, I mean, myself and a guitar, which I will find in the dark. And then Soul Meets Body, which the chorus doesn't even come in for like a minute, 30 or something like that. And it also has a sort of a clear post melody thing that's really singable that has a 
I don't know, that's another dorky conversation, but it's a different sort of choice on that album to do something that feels like radio loves. But I don't think you necessarily went for that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's somewhat. They just I mean, respond to Yeah, I mean, Soulmate's Body is kind of a linear song. It's like, you know, there's a verse and then there's a break that kind of uses the chorus guitar part, but there isn't a. But there's, you know, there's not a singing, there's not a chorus, it's not a chorus, and then another verse. Right. You know, and a chorus, you know. So it's, you know, I think for us, we were, when, when we kind of, after the campaign on plans and everything that we had set out to do, we had accomplished, so to speak, in that. We wanted to sign to a major label because we we thought that we had you know we felt the momentum we had coming out of transatlanticism. If there was ever a moment to do it, this was the time to do it. And if there was a moment that we could kind of reach a larger audience, this would be the time to do it. There was kind of a zeitgeist moment happening with you know indie rock in general at that point. Yeah. It was becoming a little more mainstream. The sort and- of the po- the. Strokes and and Interpol and you guys have you know this. Kind of cross between, it's like organic instruments, but it was played emotionally. I don't know how to describe. How would you describe the early two thousands? Uh, if if the nineties are grunge and alternative, what do we call the two thousands? Well, I mean, for me, you know, we, you know, I, I was coming out of, you know, my, you know, my kind of musical pedigree or like influences in the nineties were, you know, indie rock kind of underground bands that, you know, maybe sold 10 or 20,000 copies. And to me, like those who? people, oh, like uh, Low, Bedhead, uh, Super Chunk, Red House Painters, um, Sleater Kinney, you know, I, you know, bands that, Codeine, you know, a lot of bands that were kind of slow and, and kind of, you know, emotive, but not emo. Um, and, you know, these, a lot of these bands were my, still are my heroes. And so, you know, for I think for me the you know the, you know the indie rock in the '90s was very much a collegiate underground kind of uh, um, kind of world, and when we started, there was no, it, you know what we have accomplished to date was not even remotely not a, not only not an option but you'd be an idiot for thinking it was even possible because this kind of genre of music this you know was 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 so underground relative to you know what else was happening in Seattle at least in the early 90s and then this you know the alternative boom that happened afterwards that there just didn't seem i mean you know to think that you know you could have a gold record or a platinum record or be nominated for a grammy or whatever else just would be like you'd be crazy you'd be laughed out of the room if you said that was you you know you 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 expressed that as like a the goal, goal a goal you know <laughs> right. so I, I and my my kind of personal theory on it is that you know a lot of the people who listen to this style of music in college you know as the as the you know the the decade turned over the you know the millennium kind of millennia came like you know all of a sudden these people are now working they're out in the world working in places that influence culture you know they're music supervisors on tv shows you know they're placing uh music and commercials or movies, or they're you know they're uh, program directors at radio stations or whatever it might be, and I think a lot of that, the culture, the musical culture that they were a part of in college, they kind of brought with them and brought into uh, the mainstream at this moment where just you know a lot of people were coming of age who had listened to that music, and sure. and it it just kind of you know I think that you know history has shown that that music had an audience that it you know uh, was just not serving right. 
Let's go back to Seattle. It's you're just getting into high school and Nirvana becomes the biggest band in the world and you're right in the middle of the epicenter of music. Where I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Chicago where all the Bulls lived because the Bulls practice facility mm-hmm. was in my hometown because Phil Jackson lived in the town next door. Where was your hometown? Deerfield. Okay, I lived in Lake Forest for a couple of years. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, so you know exactly where I grew mm-hmm. up. And also at that time, it was all the John Hughes movies. Right. We're right. all our neighboring towns. Our mm-hmm. high school at the end of Breakfast Club, when he goes like this, you know, with the fist pump in the air, that's yeah, yeah, my yeah. high school football field. Oh, you know? That's awesome. So you grew up thinking that this is, no, no, that's life. Of course, everyone grows up, you know, thinking that, you know, movies are all from your hometown and the best basketball team in the world is also from your hometown. And yeah, that's just life, of course. You don't have anything to compare it to. I imagine growing up in Seattle and being in high school, oh yeah, down the street, this, you know, all these Hall of Fame bands and artists and musicians, they just happen to live one town over. I mean, did you have any perspective on how unique of a location that was growing up? Well, when I was, uh, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. And I was born in a town called Bremerton, Washington, which is an hour's ferry ride away from uh-huh. downtown Seattle. And we we moved back to Bremerton in 1991, you know, early 91, you know, right before, at least, you know, as far as the mainstream is concerned, Seattle found its way onto the musical map. And, you know, I guess I was 14 or 15 at that at that point. And, you know, I, I was a couple years into kind of, punk rock and underground music and starting to kind of find my own identity through the music that I listened to. And, you know, I, it was certainly kind of, um, it, there was a, certainly a sense of regional pride that I think an identity that we all shared in the Northwest have and, and vindication that a lot of this music that we had been listening to for some time, myself less so because I was 14, Right. You know, was starting to kind of find a larger audience, but there's something really unique about Seattle. At least there was at that time, and to an extent, still is the case. You know, we're we're a little bit we're kind of this we were this kind of sleepy outpost in the Northwest that bands didn't come to on tour. Bands would you know skip Portland and Seattle. So the scene in Seattle and also in Portland was very insular. It was like we were basically bands playing for themselves, and it was a very DIY kind of community. Um, so with, with the national acclaim came a sense of like, all of a sudden there's a lot of new people showing up in Seattle, journalists, other bands and musicians trying to get signed. You know, whereas, you know, three or four years before this time, everybody was leaving Seattle to go to LA or New York. And now those people are starting to move back. Yeah. You know? um, and I was, you know, too young to have participated in the scene at that point. But one thing I do remember was like, while I certainly, you know, liked those bands and certainly respected them and still do to this day, you know, my own personal taste kind of was a little kind of, you know, kind of one tier under that as far as like national visibility. Um, You know, I grew up like a huge fan of, um, you know, some of the bands I was really into at that time were uh, Hammerbox, which is a band from Seattle, a band called Seaweed from Tacoma, Hazel from Portland, uh, Tree People, which from Boise, which became Built to Spill. It was Doug Marsh's first wow. band before that. And, you know, as a kid, it was, you know, coming out of the 80s, 
where uh, you know MTV was you know just brutal. And if you wanted, you know, as a kid growing up in the suburbs and you look on MTV and it's just guys with long hair like ripping guitar solos <laughs> and, you know, you, I, I, I'm, I, yeah. you, know you, you really got this impression that in order to be a musician, you had to be technically proficient. There had to be this kind of, well, I don't look like that person. I can't play like that person. They're playing in a stadium. What's, you know, it just, there was no, there was so little, you just could not see any world in which you could ever become a musician because that's all you saw as far as what it meant to be a guitar player or a songwriter or whatever, at least, you know, pre-punk rock, right? And then as a teenager, I'm going to these shows across the water at this little venue called the OK Hotel, you know, a 200 capacity, all ages venue. And you're seeing like the guys and treat people like loading their amps on stage, selling their own merch, like putting the stuff in the van, you're like talking to them afterwards. They're being nice to you, you know? Like it, it was just my first, it was an eye-opening experience as a kid to realize that, you know, such a large part of what I wanted as a musician and what I saw as like, quote unquote, the, the right way of doing it was this sense of community and the sense of like, yeah, you may be on the stage, but, you know, you know being on a stage doesn't make you like a better person, doesn't make you more important and the person in the audience, and that kind of synergy and kind of kind of like reciprocal kind of uh, um, kind of energy that you know I felt was kind of between you know the audiences in Seattle and and the bands that were playing there, the local bands uh, was really palpable. And I think also you could see some of that spirit certainly in in, in the bands that got big too, be it you know Pearl Jam or Soundgarden or Nirvana. I mean, there was you know they became larger than life in the in the context of you know the world, but at the same time you they were still these like shit kickers who wanted to walk around Seattle and like, you know, shop in vintage stores and go to record stores. You still see them around, you know, it wasn't, right. they didn't get famous and leave, you know, they- And their songs, their songs were still, um, they, they all felt genuine. Those songs felt real. They didn't feel like the, the music you write for a spectacle, like a stadium show. Where you have these, you know, giant snares and these huge the the way it's recorded and the the music that you need to uh, to play for sixty thousand people is different than the music that you need to play for the two hundred people in the room. What's nice is when you hear that those kind of smaller songs and smaller lyrics is you want to be in the room. It's just sold out because there's only twenty seats. You know, or there are only two hundred seats or whatever. So it's it's interesting. I feel like the music at that point was like, oh, I want to be, I want to be part of those. I want to be friends with those guys because you know well, yeah, those guys, that? those guys feel like you were saying. You know, they feel like they could easily be in the house next door playing. I want to be friends with those guys. I because I can't be friends. The way you write a song is different when you know what your audience is. On I guess some I level. should, yeah, and I guess I should say that you know so much of the music that I grew up caring about uh, seemed to have been created almost in direct uh, as a as a direct protest to to things like that right so you know I you know I, I found myself just you know kind of really swept away with this kind of um, in this uh, you know I was just so fortunate to have kind of found myself back in the Northwest at a time when you know uh, you know the, you know music the music community was just really kind of getting the recognition that it Maybe had, had had deserved for some time, but now people around the country and around the world were starting to recognize it, and it was just a really great time to be in Seattle. And then you you start, you decide, you know what? I want to be 
an artist, I want to start recording my songs, and you start recording mid nineties, ninety six or something like that. So you're kind of still right in the heart of that whole scene. Uh, did you feel like you were competing with those other bands, or was it one of those things where no, I'm gonna just these are my songs. I'm gonna record them in a studio, and I'm gonna start selling them out of my van, out of my backseat, or whatever. I mean, how did oh, the process no, go? Oh, there was no like sense of competition at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just you know, I, I mean, I guess like many people who write songs or make music, you kind of do it because you can't not do it, and. You know, I, as I said earlier, I think you know a lot of so many of my, you know, the you know I I I I started I didn't even know I was starting a career in music so much as I was just starting like a you know like a just kind of a craft that I just enjoyed for the sake of just doing it in the first place. And so you know there was never really a moment where I ever considered a career as a musician as like a possibility. As an it actual just, occupation, it wasn't a an occupation. No, it wasn't <laughs> right. something that anybody. I mean, I. The, there were none you know my heroes at that time uh you know you know would maybe sell like i said sell 10 or 15,000 records and they'd come through on a tour in the summer and then they'd go back to their day jobs and so i think even when the band was first beginning in 98 we were i guess 97 and we put the first record out in 98 you know i i think the height of my ambitions were that maybe we could kind of sustain this we could sustain a touring entity that people might kind of come and see us play in small clubs around the country, but that, you know, grad school was in my future. You know, there was, this wasn't, uh, we didn't see this as a a viable way to make a living even for a short period of time, let alone a career. When did you find your voice as a writer? I mean, when you're, you're listening to a lot of music, you're a fan of music, you're reading a fake book, you're, you start playing. When are you starting to write songs that sound like you? Because you have such a definable writing style. When do you feel like you wrote the first real song that's yours? Well, I was, you know, in you know high school bands, you know, writing my own songs, and then what I, were they? Uh, I played in a band. Uh, my first band was called Oddfellows Local, which I still think is a great name, named after the REM song Oddfellows Local One Five One. And that was my first band. Then I played in a couple other little punk bands and stuff. And then, uh, and then I moved to Bellingham to go to college at Western Washington University, and was in a band called Pinwheel. And we played for a couple of years. It was like a two songwriter band. And I think all throughout that period, you know, I was very much a a, a product of my influences. And you know, as with a lot of young people who start writing music, you know, they they hear say Sonic Youth, and then. They just sound like Sonic Youth for three months, and then they hear Gang of Four, and they go, oh, "That's what I want to do." And then they write like Gang of Four. So I was kind of, in my own way, I think, doing a lot of that. But and I, I never really wrote a lot of songs. I wasn't constantly writing. You know, I, I just kind of, whenever inspiration struck, I'd write a song, um, which wasn't that wasn't that often. But I just had this like this burst of writing in '97 where I wrote three or four songs that were all the best songs I had written to that point. And they all were written very in quick succession of each other. And I just remember thinking like, whoa, I'm actually... And I started playing the demos for some of my friends. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but whenever you play something for somebody, you can kind of tell when they're just kind of like being encouraging because they're your friend and when they're actually really stoked on something. And it went from the 
oh yeah, man, that's cool. Yeah, cool. I really like that. Oh, cool. Oh, you got a little chorus in there. To like, seriously, man, that's great. You know, you could see there was like a, a market shift in how people talked. But they about become a songs. fan and not just a friend, kind of. Or, or you can just kind of see it. You yeah, know, you know yeah, when somebody's being yeah. supportive and when they're actually really into yeah. something. Um, and you know, that was around the time that I had uh, met, just after I'd met Chris Walla, and he was a budding engineer and producer, and had just bought a reel-to-reel eight-track machine, a half-inch eight-track machine, and we kind of started this partnership, you know, with the sole purpose of just recording these songs, and we made this eight-song cassette called "You Can Play These Songs with Chords," and you know, at that point, the ambition was literally like make cassettes, put them at the, put them in Cellophane Square, the record store in Bellingham, and like hand them to your friends. Maybe play a show just because you went to the trouble of making this recording. Might as well play a show, sure. And that will kind of be it. And um, but that's when I feel I, I started to kind of find find my voice as a songwriter. And I think that you know I think that where I started at that point to where I got five years later was I think five years later was more indicative of the kind of kind of the type of songwriting I've I'm known for. But. Uh, that that those early recordings, those early Death Cab recordings, were really the first moment that everything kind of clicked. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music like me and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From garage bands to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the websites for thousands of musicians around the world. Their simple step-by-step system will get you online in minutes. Choose from dozens of mobile-friendly templates, customize your design and content in just a few clicks. Built for musicians by musicians, Banzoogle has all the features you need for your website and EPK already built in, including a merchant download store to sell music and merch commission-free right on your website. Use your tour calendar to promote your shows and sell tickets commission-free. Mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send professional newsletters. Integrations to pull in content from all your online services, including Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. And live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Go to banzoogle.com to start your 30-day free trial 
And be sure to use the promo code ATWI to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com. Use the promo code ATWI to build your website today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You write a lot of the songs 100%. You know, some of them obviously have the bandmates in it and you know Chris has obviously been a, a big collaborator of yours from the beginning how how did you guys interact when you would show him a song was it sort of the you know let's go to the Beatles thing you know it's like you play play the song producer hears it and all of a sudden it's this it's a it's an opus was it sort of like that where you come in you play the song and then Chris had the ability to blow it out or was it something where he would give advice and say, you know what, that lyric, you could beat that. And I mean, how did that relationship actually function? And the reason why I ask is because most people we have on this are, they're known to be co writers. And, uh, you know, the bulk of your songs, you're the 100% writer. So I'm trying to figure out how, how, how does, yeah, how does it work for you? How does a 100% writer exist now? Well, you know, I mean, I from the very beginning, I would, you know, a, the songwriting process for me is is maybe similar to a lot of people in the sense where it just starts with some kind of riff or idea, but and you know, I, but I've often I've I I play a lot. I mean, I mean, these days everybody plays a lot of instruments, you know, um, but I really prided myself on make at the time making four track demos where I would play. Okay, this is how the bass line goes. I think the drum part should go like this. And there would always be a little bit, maybe some. There would be spaces left for arrangement, uh, other people's parts, and um, you know, our the rule of thumb and how we would split up. We've always split up songwriting credit. Is if somebody brings something to the song that uh, you know markedly changes it, uh, or somebody brings like a riff that like becomes like, you know, if we had if I had written "Sweet Child of Mine" but didn't have that opening riff. And then you know, Walla had brought that in. He would get writing credit for that because sure. that's the hook of the song. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've done almost no co-writing in my life. I mean, you know, we there have been moments in, when Chris was in the band where maybe he would bring in some instrumental music and I would kind of put it in my computer and cut it up and then add melody and lyrics and some other arrangement things and we would you know split that. But for the most part, I was bringing in complete songs. Still to this day, bringing in complete songs that have, you know, at least in their early early stages. Like, here's my guitar part. Uh, the bass line kind of goes like this. Uh, there's a keyboard line that goes like this. And you know, 
there are often times where, you know, maybe the bass line and the keyboard line get scrapped and something else gets put in its place. But, you know, a good fair amount of the time, you know, I think if you were to listen to a demo of, of one of our songs versus the album version, there, you know, there, there will be some variation, but they tend to be maybe a little more similar than, uh, similar in from the beginning to the end, at least in the structure of the song and the hooks in the song than, than maybe some other people's songs. Why do you have so many different projects in your career? I mean, most people, I feel like, have to work on their brand. And you've been sort of like, no, my brand is that I write with different people differently and I do different projects and I'm inspired right now to do this kind of music or this kind of music. But what, you know, I would imagine that there are people who say, no, just focus, just only focus on one thing. And you're obviously, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to focus on my thing and this is what I want to do now. But you've you're you've so many side projects that have worked, and obviously Postal Services was a massive success on a side project. Did you feel like any of those brands were competing with each other, or did you you know how does how does somebody have side projects in the two thousands and in this millennia? Well, I suppose I, I find the term brand to be a fairly uh, fairly kind of new phenomenon. In how people talk about themselves, and I understand, I understand what it means, and I understand uh, why people want to kind of curate a particular view of themselves as a creative person. Uh, and obviously, in today's world, it's not just the music you're making; it's your presence on social media, it's the a- activities that you're doing. You know, if 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 one is kind of well known enough to sell products, that might be part of it. Choosing kind of like you know uh, endorsements that kind of you know, kind of uh, reinforce kind of one's presence as a public figure, so to speak. But I guess I'm just too old to have ever thought of it that way. I mean... It happened as a byproduct. I I mean, well, no, it's just like I just kind of have always just done what I want to do. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, coming out of the community that I did in Bellingham where we started, you know, everybody had five side projects, you know. I mean, everybody had a band and then a side thing they were doing with somebody else and then you know, a, a weird lo-fi kind of noise project. And, you know, it was just in the spirit of kind of DIY and, and, and kind of doing what you felt like doing in that time. And, you know, I certainly understand why people, certain musicians or songwriters, performers, feel, you know, in today's day and age, feel they need to focus on presenting, a, you know, a particular uh, uh, look and... Uh, Maybe look's not the right word. A particular it's kind a of sonic look, if that's a thing. Yeah, it's there's, a, there's a, a thing. they they yeah. they want that people want to be want to control people want to have image control and protect you know uh, protect kind of how they're as much as they can how they're viewed in the outside world. But for me, I've just always felt like Death Cab for Cutie has been my priority since day one, and I think you learn a lot by working with other people on creative projects and you know while I've never been someone who's you know been particularly interested in co-writing or you know uh, not I wouldn't even know how to begin how to do that you know obviously a lot of people do so I'm not saying it to knock it by at all it's just something I've never it's never been a part of my kind of lexicon or kind of creative. I imagine that people especially once you sign to a major say oh you should write with or or were they always no 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 
Ben's going to do his thing. Anyway, oh, I would have been furious if, if some of the Atlantic Records would have suggested that I write with somebody on one of our albums. I would have been furious. Yeah. Because, you, you know, I think that, because that's just never been a part of, of why I started doing this. You know, I, and I'm not just, that's not to say that, you know, those kind of collaborations can't be fruitful, but I think at the time, I mean, we're talking 2005, 2006, 2007, when we were first signed to Atlantic, I would have seen that as, that I no longer possess the ability to do my job. So we need to bring somebody else in who can, uh, you know, bring a different sound or look or lyrical perspective to our music. And I just, I just was never interested in that. So, Would you be interested in it at any point, you think? Uh, you know, I, I, I've, done a couple, I've done a couple writing sessions with the people in the past couple of years out of curiosity. And um, I've had, I, I found that the, I've had the most, I, I feel like I, I enjoy working with other people when they are bringing something to the table that just needs to be punched up or needs top line information or maybe some arrangement choices. But I, I, a couple of times I found myself in a situation where I'm in the room with, this, with a performer, an artist, and oh. they just want you to write the song for them. <laughs> and I have no interest in doing that. No. Um, I'm sure you probably found yourself in that situation yeah. before too. It's like, look, yeah, I'm not here to do your job. Like, sure. you know, I, well, I guess, I guess if, I, if I'm brought in as a writer, I am there, there to do that job. But I, I have no interest in... Um, uh, kind of, you know, watching somebody play on their fo- play on their phone while they sit on the couch while I try to write a song for them. You know? Right, of course. I'd much rather kind of come into a room, which I did recently with somebody, and, and uh, we tried to like write a song together, and it was it didn't work that way. We wrote something, but it was kind of shitty. And then she was like, "Well, let me show you something I've been working on. It's kind of a weird song." I'm like, "Ooh, weird song. I want to hear what yeah. that is." And it turned into this like really kind of fun day of just punching up that thing. And to me, I really enjoy that and would love to do more of that. Sure. But I'm not so much interested in co-writing for myself, uh, for, for Death Cab. I'm not, I mean, I already have you know, four other co-writers, so to speak, in the band. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that uh, for, for the sake of kind of you know, maintaining a, um, you know, kind of, kind of uh, you know, the MO that I think we've been kind of known for, I, I feel we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we brought in other writers to kind of, Kind of punch up our songs, Death Cab songs. Yeah, uh, and there are a lot of wonderfully talented people out there. It's not a, it's not, it has, it's no, in no way a reflection of my lack of trust. You know, you know that I don't feel that the other people are good enough to do it, so to speak. It's just that that's just never been a part of how we've worked. And I'm, I mean, I we're, I was, we were talking about it before, but you know, I'm releasing this album in the spring, and, um. I spend a lot of time, and I have a lot of pride in the fact that I'm the only writer. That's a, that's a major thing. It's not to say that I didn't get input from people along the way who were like, you know, that'd be interesting if this had that or that. You know, whereas oh yeah, that 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 would make the song better. It's not to say I'm I'm closed off to it, but I think I take a lot of pride in the songs I write for myself to to say, you know, no, I can I can write a hundred percent song in this. This is what my mind sounds like. Absolutely, yes. To me, I, 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 and and my collaborators in it, and you know, Ricky Reed, and and in in New York, Tommy Kale. These guys are are the best at what they do, and they make me better, and they can help my voice come out better in a way that, in very few people I trust can. So I rely on them, and I trust them and their input, and that's what makes those songs sing better. But the idea of co-writing 
you know, the what I do for myself is is would be really complicated. But I my whole job is writing with other people. Right, right, right. <laughs> for them, and sometimes writing a hundred percent of the lyrics and melodies, which. The cool part of that is that you're trapped in you. <laughs> you you as an artist, are, no matter what. When I said in the beginning, you have a tone that I you know you can't teach tone. You just can't. You were born with a face that creates a certain frequency that cuts through records. Well, you can't teach that. You know, in in that sense, you're just you. And when you write your own songs, they have to be. Honest, but when you write for someone else, it's I can I can pretend, and I can play in different genres and play with different artists. And today I'm gonna be, you know, today I'm gonna be a woman. Today I'm mm. gonna be a, you know, I'm gonna be a black guy. You know, I can be. There are no rules. I can write with them, and I can, you know, be honest with myself as a writer, and not necessarily have it be. What I would sing in public as a as a as that artist. So I I think I really appreciate that different that nuance, but it's exciting to have people you know who write a hundred percent songs because I think it takes a long fucking time. You have to be able to look back and look at your own. I mean I don't know your process when you're writing mm-hmm. alone. How long does it take you to write a song? I suppose it depends on the song, but yeah, you know, I mean, I have a, I have a, like a writing space downtown Seattle, and I go when I went, when I'm at home for extended periods of time, I kind of go there, you know, daily, and you know, kind of get in a room and get in the room and kind of just, you know, whether it's starting with like a, a, a drum loop or a sample or a guitar. Do you have or hours? Something. Do you literally? Are you disciplined? Yeah, I try to get there. I mean, I, I try to get there before like ten or ten thirty, and just kind of try to get an idea off the ground. And I feel like if an idea gets off the ground, usually it's it's always usually kind of a musical or rhythmic idea. That's and then I write the lyrics kind of to I, I allow the music kind of dictates the the mood of the lyric. Um, and you know sometimes sometimes a song will take you, know, you get lucky and you're like you're pretty much done by the end of the day at least with like a rough kind of. Uh, uh, you know, s- skeleton, and then the next day it's like, oh, goody, I have to go in and like arrange this thing. You know, I get to, I got the lyric and I got the basic structure, and like, you know, I'm gonna throw down a scratch vocal right now before I go home, and then I'll come in tomorrow, and oh man, I got some ideas for guitar parts, and maybe this other keyboard thing could do that. Um, but it's it's usually always like I'm, I don't keep like a I don't keep like a notebook of lyrics that I'm trying to kind of you know shoehorn into songs. I'm always writing to the mood of whatever music. I'm writing, you know. But you start almost from the, a music place more often yeah. than a lyric place. Yeah, I mean, I'll keep in my phone. I'll keep little ideas, like little kind of jumping off points for lyrics. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, a song will begin lyrically. It'll begin with an idea that I, I'm almost kind of like I, I'm kind of uh, what's the word, how kind of painting myself into a corner and I have to kind of get my way out. I mean, one that always comes to mind is. A song on transatlanticism uh, called "Title and Registration," which I just started singing. The glove compartment is inaccurately named, and I was like, "Okay, well, where am I going with this?" So, like, I have right. to some now. I have to kind of I explain have to, it. I have to write my way out of this hole, you know. <laughs> um, so that you know, and I where I, did that come from? It just came out, or well, were you, you know, I had found I had found a photograph of an old uh, girlfriend in the years later that was like stuffed in the glove compartment underneath. 
a bunch of stuff in my in you know a bunch of papers and garbage and stuff and I just kind of I had this like wave of memories all of a sudden so you know I, I think I was kind of channeling that moment and then I was able to kind of tie it across um, but I want to kind of double back around to what you're saying about writing for other people and I find it it's an unbelievable skill that you have and the people who are in who, who do co-writes that you're able to kind of write from another perspective and I've just never been able to do that I've, I've every once in a while I've tried to write a song for somebody with the idea of I'm going to write the song and then send it to them you know, every once in a while I would get solicited to kind of do that kind of work. And that was always the hardest thing for me to do. Like I, it's, it's very difficult for me as a writer to break out of my own life experience because I see my own, I, see, I look back on my the memories in my life or the times in my life that I feel are worth writing about and they take on kind of a cinematic quality in my mind. And when I can see everything like I'm watching a movie, that's where all the details jump out but it's as if I have to have experienced some part of it to really be able to write about it effectively. So, you know, I, you know, if the, I like trying to write a song from, uh, you know, a different perspective or as a different character sometimes, it's been very difficult for me. It's not a skill that I, I have. So I'm always, you know, I always admire people who are able to do that because it's just not been a part of how I've worked. But some of that, some of that's true, right? Obviously, the more colorful your lyrics are and the more that are you, in a way, it's it's hard to find other people who, who want to even cut those kinds of songs. It's your song, and someone could maybe cover it. But that's a thing. What The reason why I feel connected to you, even though I've never met you, is because I've listened to Death Cab for Cutie records, and I've listened to Postal Service records. And so I, I know, I feel like I know you from that. So something in those details speak to other humans. So there are other humans in the world that would love to release one of those songs and record it the way they would want to record it. I say go for so, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Go, go, go. Right, go record them it, all. <laughs> Cover them all. Um, but there's something in that that uh, you know you don't have to you don't have to suddenly be somebody you're not. You just have to tap into another thing. If you're talking about the glove compartment being inaccurately named because from your perspective, it's a flood of memories, what's really interesting is that if you're the ex-girlfriend and you're wondering if, did he ever find my picture? Right, and then writing from that perspective. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you can look at, you know, and there's nuances in the same stories you're telling that could be really interesting on the other side. That's those are this that that's the same song, different person singing it. But imagine the person who's sitting there wondering, I hid that picture years ago. And maybe they've moved on, maybe they have a family and they have all those things. But my assumption is that that person's also telling that story. My mom used to say that Well, see, and that's why you're good at what you do. You know, <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> because you you think of you think of the other side of the story. I I've, I've only been able to see it frame yeah. it through the one finding the photograph, you know? That should be I would I would think it'd be really interesting if you went back to a lot of those songs and, you know, you're, you know, postal service and you're sitting in this, you know, you're in the gaudy apartment complex and you're the guy who's uh who's still there. Years later, and I thought I was going to be somebody else. You know, I'm the the neighbor to the that couple. Right, right. Yeah. You know, 
Maybe that's a whole. Maybe I've got a whole. Maybe that's like I've got a whole. Uh, you have so many of albums. If I just write the the opposite, the opposite of the songs. <laughs> it would be fascinating if there's an album that was just the opposite perspective. Well, one thing you know? I've one of my favorite songwriters uh, is um, Stephen Merritt, The Magnetic Fields, and one of why I it's I don't think it's one of his best songs, but I love it. So I still love it and think it's conceptually kind of interesting. Is uh, he has a song on uh, the, their album Distortion. That's called California Girls, and he had been. The story goes, he was driving around and heard California Girls on the radio, and said, "Like, I want to write the opposite of that song." Yeah. So the hook is like, "I hate California Girls," <laughs> and the whole song is how much he hates California Girls. And you know, I've, I, you know, I, I admire people who are able to kind of like, like, well, I want to write the opposite of that song. Yeah. You know, but it's just very rarely has that been an impulse for me. Sure. Well, and, and the other thing that is common in the pitching world is that a lot of times people think as an artist, oh, well, this one isn't good enough for my album, but maybe there's someone out there who will cut it. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that the art artist world outside of you is dumb enough to cut your B-sides. <laughs> now your B-sides are probably pretty good, but there's an impulse that's like, well, why can't this song get cut? I mean, it's really good. It's just not good enough for me. <laughs> and I and I and I'm always saying, no, you have to write you have to write with the same focus and bar that you would have for yourself for somebody else. You know, maybe it's your focus differently on lyrics or melodies depending on who the singer is, but you have to give the same love to that process that you would for yourself. Otherwise, no one's going to cut it. They yeah, can fe- I would imagine- they can feel it's fake. Yeah, I would imagine that would be the case. Yeah. 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 You're not getting any no pop, pop stars here hundreds of you know their team hears thousands of songs for their albums. They're cutting 30, 40 songs that have been sifted through all these pitches. You know, for you to sift through for you to become one of those top 40 songs that get cut by an artist, let alone the 10 that make the album or the the 3 that become singles or the one I mean, you better be playing the same game you're playing for yourself. Yeah, and and you know, I have the utmost ad from admiration for people who are able to kind of truck in that world. But that, as a songwriter, that sounds like my nightmare. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that totally. would be my nightmare. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of you know, I make no, um, you know, I make no uh, parallels between myself and this person. But I always, I often think about uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald as a writer, and then you know, later in his life, he came out to Hollywood to try to. He was hired to punch up scripts and write for a film, and uh, and just like you know the unhappiness that he felt and he wrote about in his experience being kind of uh, a writer for hire versus the writer that he was before it was something that I very much related to. I I can relate to in the sense of how I want my career to go, which is that like you know I don't possess the. Uh, uh, I I don't possess like the the skin, like the you know to or the the patience to kind of enter into a world of writing songs for other people in that capacity. Right. And I say yeah. that you know I'm you know I'm, I say that not to poo poo it at all, but just knowing myself, I would much rather kind of continue to write songs for myself um, and for our band than to try to kind of enter a world in which I'm you know actively writing songs for other people because I just. You know, I just couldn't handle that kind of rejection. I don't think <laughs> that's interesting. I think when you also when you 
my first album came out, it was my name, and I felt the need to write a bunch of songs that were political and not about myself. And then once I had a band name and I was in a band, I was getting all of, you know, emo in my lyrics and getting emotional because I could hide behind the band name. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have to know your name. They just have to know, oh, it's, this is the singer from Death Cab who just happens, it's, it's a collective thing and you can kind of hide behind the name in one year being really honest. Well, and a lot you know? of, yeah, and friends of mine who have, you know, throughout the years who have, you know, you know, been making music that sounded like full band music. It wasn't singer-songwriter music, you know, in a traditional sense. We're still lumped into these singer-songwriter categories because they were going by their own name. And I think in some instances that was a massive disservice to um, a potential audience that I think might have been able to, would have been, I don't necessarily know why people would pay more attention, but people just seem to pay more attention when there's a band name. It's that branding. I, you're probably right. You yeah. know, that is a cho- it's a choice on some level. It's, you know, it it does have something to do with it, whether it's intentional or not. You know, yeah, because singing. I mean, going as certainly certainly in our world as a singer, you know, going out under your name as a singer songwriter carries, you know, in in some some ways an an unfair kind of connotation and series of stereotypes as far as what the music is trying to accomplish, what it sounds like. Um, and you know, I mean, there's a reason that Conor Oberst went by Bright Eyes all those years. Yeah, you know, and the reason that Dave Bazan went by Pay to the Lion or whatever it is. It's like I think that there's, I think that you're able to kind of, you know, be the so be the sole songwriter, be the singer songwriter, yet at the same time allow for some malleability in the creative kind of process, or to allow it to kind of either go from being what's ostensibly a one man band to a full band. Or yeah. back down to a one-man band. It gives you a little bit more, um, and also I think depending on your motivation, there's a little bit of anonymity within the ba- underneath the band name, which I think can be beneficial for some people. You're about to release your, is it your tenth album? Uh, with, ninth, with ninth, ninth album. Yeah, ninth with, like studio album. Yeah. Studio, okay, so I mean, you still have a lot to say because you're obviously still <laughs> still recording. So that's awesome. Um, the album comes out tonight. How do you feel about it? Um, you know, I'm I'm really proud of it. I feel like you know, over the, about four years ago, we, uh, you know, one of our founding members and producer, Chris Walla, left the band, um, and you know, we we brought in two new players initially, just into the touring lineup, um, Zach Ray and Dave Depper, and uh, and you know, over the course of you know you know, two or three years, we kind of integrated them into the band and we knew that we were going to go into the studio with them as players in the band. And for us, and but specifically for me as a songwriter, I've often said that, you know, certainly in the wake of Chris leaving the band, look, you know, our records are going to live and die on the quality of the songs that I'm writing. If, you know, as I look back on our records, I think the ones that, you know, the ones that are the best are the ones in which, you know, I, you know, not the songs were the songs are better, but also just that I was kind of doing more work on the front end to make sure that you know we had a body of work that was worthy of being recorded versus oh these are just the songs I have right now let's make it work and so you know going into this process of making this record I I, I did a lot more of the heavy lifting creatively than I had done in the past because I just didn't know if I would need to do that or not we having Chris in the band 
you know, there were some t- moments where I would leave kind of a part of a song kind of open and think like, you know what, we'll figure out what to do. Chris will figure out what to do with this. Or maybe we can kind of, this is kind of a simple tune, but maybe we, Chris can do some amazing production that he always does. And then, you know, that'll kind of make this song more epic than it really is, whatever it might be. So going into this album, I, I just knew I needed to kind of, I needed to bring it, you know? I mean, not that I'm not trying to bring it with every record, but specifically this record, I feel was going to be a real indicator of what the future of the band was going to hold. You know, you know, I, I was joking with a friend recently that, you know, if we were talking, you know, five years from today and we had gone through three producers and, you know, other band members and, you know, and there were hundreds of songs and then we made it, we made a stinker, you know, that would be an in- indicative of like, okay, maybe this is, maybe it's time to call it a day. Maybe, you know, maybe, um, maybe this isn't something we can continue to do without Chris creatively. Yeah. But, you know, I feel, I feel very confident in the work that we, we did on this album and I'm really proud of the songs and I feel, you know, I'd like to think that this record certainly ranks within, you know, you know, amongst at least the top half of the albums that we've made. Um, and I feel it's, you know, I feel very confident that this is, you know, a record that represents a new, a new era of this band moving forward and that we have not even begun to tap the potential of Dave and Zach as, as players and arrangers and maybe even writers at some point. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I, I've, I've only heard Gold Rush, so I can't speak to too much of it, but I will listen later. But there's, there's obviously... A- is obviously a new a new sound, you know, happening for for you guys on some level. I feel like sonically it sounds different than, you know, it seems like there's a constant evolution, which is it's so important as a fan to listen to, knowing that the artist is still inspired to push some boundaries. So yeah, I feel I feel Gold Rush is is somewhat of an outlier in the album. I mean, it is you know you know it certainly is. I think you know a song that when we released it, there were people who were both really excited about it and people who were concerned that we had strayed too far away from the guitar work and that we're kind of been known for. But, you know, I think the majority of the album, I think is, I'd like to think is in a really sweet spot where I feel there are a lot of callbacks to kind of, you know, a lot of the arrangement kind of elements that maybe we've been known for, certainly in the first half of the band's existence. And then, you know, there, you know, kind of a lot more of the kind of elements that, you know, now exist in the computer world kind of, you know, um, that are harnessing the technology of today versus, you know, when we started on a A-track reel-to-reel. Right. And, you know, you're just like, okay, well, this one, we each get one guitar and then we'll yeah. get one, one track for an overdub, you know. Right. Okay, so we don't have a ton of time. So I'm going to go, uh, we're going to skip to this five for five section. Where okay. I'm going to name something, you just tell me what the first thing is that, Comes, you know, give or take. First thing that comes off to the top of your head. Okay, um, let's start with Chris Walla. I don't know. Tell me something about it. one of five things that you could say. Well, not one of five. You can say yeah. infinite things. First thing that comes off the top of your head. Man, he's just—he was just a really, really brilliant, really brilliant producer. And he, you know, he had. I mean, one of the things that I loved about kind of his his style of kind of production and you know arrangement is you know breaking up one guitar part over two or three guitars or maybe a couple different instruments and then and layering and just creating these kind of really beautiful kind of stereo soundscapes of what was you know the much of it was guitar but it just would spread across the stereo field in this really beautiful way and 
you know, he just he's always had a way of laying those things in and really kind of, you know, integral moments within some of our, you know, songs while he was in the band. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he's, you know, he's a really, really brilliant guy. And I think, you know, in the long run, I think, you know, I'm happy that he's kind of, you know, it's, it's bittersweet when you kind of, you know, a creative relationship ends. But at the same time, you know, you'd like to think that, you know, someone is doing exactly what they want to be doing now. And I think for him to be, you know, working, you know, on records in the capacity he is now, I think that's kind of, you know, I would like to think that's a really good use of his time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know. Um, you know, you talked about the new members, but let's go with uh, Nick Hammer and Jason McGurr, the two guys that have been with you now since 2003, and obviously Nick from before that. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, well, it, it, uh, it's Harmer actually. Sorry, I'm just to it's correct ha- you. Harmer? Harmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm dyslexic. Uh, that's okay, but you got the, you got the McGurr one. That's usually the hard one. There you go. Okay, um, cool. Uh, yeah, you know, Nick. Uh, he he's always been kind of really the soul of the band. And while you know, I you know, he this is I I think he would even say this if he was here. I think while he might be the least trained musically, you know, of the band, you know, he's the one who if you if you told him to go home and write a bass part for this or to learn this part or, you know, he, he will spend hours and hours and hours getting the thing. He, he does not take his role in the band for granted. And he, he, he's an unbelievably kind of hard worker, especially when he's up against, at times, you know, the, you know musicianship that might be a little bit above his head. And, and like I said, I, you know, I, I would say that if he was here, he would agree sure. with me. But you know, I think we learned. You know, a couple of years ago, three years ago, uh, he was on like a paternity leave when his uh, daughter was being about to be born, and we had Dave Bazan from Pay the Lion came out and had learned a set on bass in case Nick had to hop on a flight and go home because his wife was going to labor, and that of course did happen. And we ended up playing a couple of shows uh, with Dave playing bass instead of Nick. And as much as I love Dave, I'd been friends with Dave for twenty years. We just realized, like you know, what we were—we just can't do this without Nick. You know, it's—it was strange to me that we could find find a way to do it without Chris. You know, although at, initially it was new and strange. Um. Uh. But you know, we got over that. You know, but I don't think I—I I, this band could not exist without Nick Harmer. It just—it just couldn't exist. Um, and Jason, uh, you know, Jason was the guy that. You know, Jason would have been in the band years earlier had he not been busy with other projects. There were a couple of moments where we, you know, we had our first drummer, Nathan Good, a phenomenal drummer, still a wonderful drummer, but his life was taking him in another direction after college. And, you know, the band was just kind of, you know, doing what the band was doing at that point, small shows, you know, touring, not making any money. And, you know, he felt he needed to kind of go off and kind of start uh, a career, which is totally understandable. And, you know, we had asked... We'd ask Jason to join them. Do you still keep in touch with Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just emailed Nate a couple days ago. Um, (laughs) But we'd asked Jason to join the band Uh, in 1999. We asked him to join the band in 2000. And then we finally, you know, finally got him in 2002. So, you know, you know, I think Jason would have been on many earlier records than he was if if he had not been busy with other projects. (laughs) But Jason's always been kind of like the band dad and the voice of reason, even though he's only a couple years older than us, but he... You know, I guess when you when you meet somebody who's when you're 20 and somebody's 22, they seem like they're they're 42. Yeah, yeah, they're wiser. Sure. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Tomborello uh, from Postal Service, your other half. Jimmy is truly one of the most unique and creative people I've ever known. I mean, there are you know, I I 
there are t- there I I feel that he is one of those rare people in my life, and Chris being another one, who's a true original, and someone who is, you know, thinks about not only music but the world from a very unique and creative and interesting place. And you know, one thing I've I've always admired about Jimmy um, uh, was that you know after. You know, Jimmy's Jim. I don't know if you've ever met Jimmy. He's kind of a quiet, mm. shy guy. He kind of he's not really one for this for the limelight. But you know, in the in the wake of in the wake of the Postal Service record and the success that it had, you know, uh, when given the opportunity to kind of take on some projects that probably would have been a little more high profile, you know, he just kind of chose to continue to make weird, you know, ambient electronic experimental music and has been doing so to this day. Yeah. And you know, he's very much stayed true to kind of the um, you know, kind of the music that moved him from a very early age, and and it's and it's also funny knowing Jimmy. I just can't imagine Jimmy in a room with Rihanna. You know, right? right <laughs> like exactly. I just, I just, I can't imagine. I can't imagine him. You know, in the room with like a pop star or something like that. It just, it would just because Jimmy's so quiet and and you know, lovably awkward that it would. I, I just, I would have a hard time. I would love to see it because it'd be fucking hilarious. We could probably figure out a way to arrange yeah, something. Right. Um. <laughs> This isn't a person, but you talk about it with so, so much love. I'm gonna just say the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I mean, I the Pacific Northwest is it's in my blood, man. It's you know, I I spent a couple years down here. I lived here for a couple years, and while it, you know, you know, I I gleaned a lot of interesting things from it, and I grew to know and understand Los Angeles in a in a in a hitherto kind of unknown way. Um. You know, it it just it always there was I always I felt like a real emptiness when I was when I was living here because I was away from my home, mm-hmm. and you know the Pacific Northwest is just the climate, the rain, the mountains, the water. You know, when I moved back to Seattle after my first marriage dissolved, you know I told myself I'm never leaving here again. It's just not happening. Uh, you know, my my family is there. My you know my friends and relationships from that go decades back now are there, and you know that community is a community that's always kept me honest. Yeah. And it's and I feel I lost I lost that when I when I live down here because there are f- very few people that could really keep me honest down here, uh, which might be maybe a slight indictment of Los Angeles, but maybe also even more <laughs> so an indictment <laughs> of the people I found myself around at the time. Right. Exactly. Um. I would like to hear what you would say to a up and coming songwriter. How would you what advice would you give to somebody who aspires to be where you are? Well, I guess I would say that I would I would I would push a young songwriter to share their work with people from a very early stage because I feel I feel that one of the biggest humps to get over as a writer of any discipline, but specifically as a songwriter, is this notion that I'm not good enough to share it with anybody yet. Like, yeah. I, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. I don't play well enough. My voice isn't strong enough. I mean, all that is just horseshit. You know, I mean, I'm so much more interested in a song written by somebody who just learned how to play guitar three days ago and knows three chords than I am someone who went to, like, Berkeley, you know, and that's not a knock on Berkeley. It's I just more mean it that that to me, you know, I you know when someone feels they have a song and then they have to get it out and they don't possess, um, you know, the technical skill 
the voice, like the you know the ability on an instrument that you know, that one might consider professional. Like I don't think that should ever be a barrier of entry to sharing your work with somebody. And you know, it's one of the, it's you know it's one of the reasons that I love so much the music that I love because, um, you know, I feel like that when people share their music when they're writing, not only writing from a vulnerable place, but they're writing from a real place and they're doing it because they just can't not do it. You know, that to me is such an interesting time and place to be as a songwriter. Because I think you might agree that as, as one continues as a songwriter, sometimes your, your motivations for why you do it might change a bit. You know, um, what you want to say changes, who you want to write for, um, how much of yourself you want to put into the work you're doing. But in those early stages when somebody's just starting to do it, that's a really exciting time, you know, because you, you get a sense of, you know, you, you, can, you can hear people's discovery of themselves in the work they're doing in those early stages. And that's really exciting. And I think in some ways it's, it's very precious and important. And, you know, get, I think that getting over the hump of feeling, you know, trying to kind of find the confidence within oneself to share that with even just your friend or friends or, you know, whatever it might be, let alone like putting it on the internet, I think is, and I think it's a really cool thing. And I think that, you know, um, I, I really look forward to kind of hearing music from people who are just starting out because I think that's a really, really cool period of time to be a writer. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. You know, um, this is, it's, it's unusual to get to sit across from someone that um, I'm a. I think of myself as a lyric guy. You know, I I'm brought into most sessions because of melodies, but I think of myself as somebody who uses multisyllabic words to you know to describe things how they should be described and to not be afraid of whether that word fits and to make sure that you that the color matters in in the the quality of the word really matters and and you've you do that so well and you're so consistent at it and we had we interviewed Jason Evigan the first season who has currently as the number one pop song in the country right now with Maroon 5 and he quoted you Oh really? Oh yeah. wow, that's crazy. And and you know I know you hear it a lot, but I just want to say it again. I'm I'm going to read the the chorus of of "I'll Follow You Into the Dark," which is, "If heaven and hell decide that both are satisfied, and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark." That quote, that lyric, is, you know, as difficult or simple as it was to write it transcends you know who you know what you stand for and i i appreciate anybody who writes a lyric like that so thank you for sharing your talent with the world and for being with us today well, it was a real honor to be here thank you so much cool. thanks for listening to this episode of and the writer is if you want to hear music from this songwriter i just interviewed be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 